Well, I want to welcome to the program Father Hightower, who is joining me from today, Missoula, Montana. Uh, he is a, a Jesuit priest who has a very rich background in connection with uh, many areas that are listening to this program, or those of you that are watching it. Uh, that means the state of Washington. So welcome, Father Hightower. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you today. Yeah. So, Father, I know that uh, the immediate reason for us to be talking is about uh, a silent day of prayer that will be happening on Ash Wednesday. I can't believe Lent is already right around the corner next week. That just feels crazy to me. Uh, do you do you feel like it's kind of snuck up on you a bit here? It has. It's, uh, you know, February being the shortest month is also the month that brings us all kinds of stuff, you know, spreading from uh, the love of Ash or the love of Valentine's Day to uh, the pain of Ash Wednesday. It's a it's a different month for sure. Well, with the uh, I can't tell what's happening out here with the weather, but it has been a horrible. Well, I I call it a horrible winter. Really, really cold, icy, and tons of snow in the Spokane area. So I, but I maybe I shouldn't complain compared to what you're experiencing in Montana. <laughs> yeah, we had a pretty dry January, um, uh, but February we've already got. Yesterday we had about four or five inches of snow here. Uh, today, I think the high temperature right now is in the mid 20s. Um, but over last weekend, it was up into the late, the high 30s. So, you know, everyone had their shorts on and flip flops. Well, Father, I'm going to stop complaining now, okay? <laughs> now, Father Hightower, you, um, you start your journey here uh, in terms of uh, your life of faith and all this other stuff. It sounds like you started your journey in Western Washington. Uh, growing up in the Renton area. Is that true? That is correct. Uh, I'm number five out of six kids. Uh, grew up in Renton and uh, went to uh, St. Anthony's parochial school for a few years. And then when my oldest brother was going into high school, uh, we made the jump to the public schools. Uh, my dad was a public school administrator and uh, with six kids in Kennedy High School would have been about a 15 minute, 15 mile drive. And so it would just made sense to go back into public schools at that point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so public high school and then went to Seattle University in Seattle, which is a Jesuit school there. Sure. Well, that's interesting. So uh, and you grew up in a Catholic family. Yes. Yes. My, so uh, what was that like back then growing up? I'd like to hear a little bit about your Catholic family and what it was like to live as a Catholic in high school in particular, uh, in, a, in a public high school, what that was like in terms of like living your faith and uh, the welcome or the challenge that that was that involved in something like that. Well, I was very fortunate to have, uh, we constantly had a priest at our house. We constantly had a Dutch Hunthausen, uh, you know, Archbishop Hunthausen was over there. He was very good friends with uh, my uh, maternal grandparents and my mom had gone to Carroll college when he was there. And then my dad's brother was a diocesan priest here in the diocese of Helena and then retired out to the Archdiocese of Seattle. And so we had priests at the house all the time. Um, and so I was used to that. And, you know, being five out of six, my older siblings kind of took the brunt of, you know, being Catholic, so to speak. Everyone knew that I was Catholic when I got there. Uh, and so, you know, everyone, our, our curfew for Saturday night was based on how late we arrived, is how early a mass we had to go in the morning. Um, so, you know, it was all about choices at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, at that point, uh, St. Anthony's in Renton was one of the larger parishes in the Archdiocese of Seattle. Uh, and so it was just, you know, we were very involved in the youth group, very involved in, uh, the middle school group when it was called club 78, I think. 
and yeah, just grew up, you know, every Sunday was mass and then soccer in the afternoons. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, based on some of your background here that you, you were pretty engaged in sports growing up as well. Well, I'm, I'm uh, an expert on benches. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Funny. I think you're, uh, you're exaggerating a little bit. Uh, Cause at, at one point you were uh, teaching at uh, Bellarmine prep in Tacoma right. and you were pretty successful uh, in terms of helping some state titles, right. In, in, in soccer, boys and girls. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had the great uh, honor of being mentored and taught by some wonderful coaches uh, on the, on the women's side, uh, Jenny Phillips and Mary Campbell, now Mary Rink, um, you know, they're just wonderful coaches, great role models, uh, Joe Waters uh, who used to play for the Tacoma stars. You know, those were the varsity coaches, and they really empowered uh, the assistant coaches to to learn the game and uh, to coach well. Um, one of the reasons why I think we were able to do so well is we didn't have uh, coaches who happened to teach. We had teachers at the school who happened to coach. And so there's just a whole different uh, hermeneutical approach to sports in that way. And so we were very Did you just use the term hermeneutical approach related to soccer coaches? I did. That's impressive, I Father. Did. You're definitely a Jesuit. I like what you just did there. So, Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we, uh, you know, Bellarmine has a, a great, great extracurricular activities, it has great sports programs, has a wonderful theater program, a speech and debate, and so the the students are held to a higher standard, and means the coaches are, and so we're we're very fortunate to be successful. Mm-hmm. So, Father, at some point, because, you know, you grew up in this Catholic home, you had lots of priests around you, um, you know where this question is going, right? You graduate from Seattle University. It's a Jesuit Catholic university right there yep. in Seattle. And um, and and then you start to work for, you start working for what Bellarmine and, and, and serving around. At some point, there was this sense of a call, a vocation to uh, priesthood and religious life and particularly to the Jesuits. I'd love to hear... How did that how did that emerge? And this is just so important, I think, for parents to hear and as well as for young people uh, that are single and trying to discern their state in life. Um, how does a vocation emerge in someone? Well, you know, the, the reality is Seattle University as a Jesuit school uh, is pretty expensive. And so when I, you know, I'd done a lot of volunteer work with uh, campus ministry at the time, uh, I was a student campus minister in charge of outreach. And was really involved on the the social justice side of the faith practice. And because of the finances at Seattle U uh, and being number five out of six, um, I had to take a full-time job uh, right after my 21st birthday. And so I was a facilitator one in work release facilities for uh, the Department of Corrections. So I worked uh, midnight to 8 a.m., 11 to 7, or uh, 10 to 6. And so I worked in because of that and then going to school full time, I was not doing a whole lot of volunteer work. I was just too tired and I slept during the day because I worked all night. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I got to be a senior, I decided that, you know, I wanted to go back and do volunteer work and do do that before, quote unquote, marriage and mortgage. Uh, the person I was the person I was with was a year behind me. And so I decided to go overseas and work uh, at that time, which is still this time, uh, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, I graduated in June and in July, I moved to Port-au-Prince, Haiti and uh, lived in Haiti for two years. Um, and that's where I entered the Jesuits from Haiti. Uh, you know, those of you that have kids or nieces and nephews, your grandchildren, they don't care when you're sick. They, When they want you, they want you. And so I was uh, under the weather once and uh, the kids were just pounding on my door and pounding on my door. And I thought to myself, 
you know, how the heck can I do this the rest of my life? And uh, the Jesuits made the most sense with the academic portion. Um, and then giving of being able to celebrate and give the sacraments made made the most sense. And so I joined the Jesuits and I've been in schools ever since until just the last five years being in parishes. Mm-hmm. So having been both in schools and in parishes in, in this in these last you know 15 years, um, what would you say would be um, some of the things that have changed? Um, and, and we can talk about it again in both ways, the things that would be considered um, bright spots where, you know, here's a real opportunity for the Catholic faith to shine in people's lives um, as compared to some of the things that are happening right now in the world that make it more difficult for someone to um, like own and live their Catholic faith. Well, I think one of the one of the important things, especially at schools with teenagers and even young college kids and tw- young 20-somethings, is a lot of it becomes about choices and being able to be empowered to make good choices. Um, anyone can make a choice between good and bad. It doesn't mean they always do it. But really what uh, our Catholic faith allows us to do is make choices between good and good, good and better, better and better. And that requires hard work, but it also re- requires a, a solid foundation in which to make those decisions. So you know, don't argue with your kids and your grandkids about they're going to go to 730 mass because that's, they're not, but, you know, say, okay, you're going to go to mass on Sunday. You get to choose which one you want to go to and let, let them be empowered to make their decision. Oh, am I going to go to 730? Am I going to go to nine? Am I going to go to 10? Maybe I'll go to the 6 PM, you know, depending on what their athletic schedule is, depending on what their uh, study schedule is for school and allow them to make choices and say, you know, this is what we want you to do, but allow them to make choices and have some ownership in their faith. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is uh, a lot of parents and a lot of grandparents, they own the faith and then expect their students and their children to have the same faith they have. And the world's a different world. They don't. Um, and so I think empowerment and choices are, are incredibly important in today's world. So I'd love to dig into this further. And and then we're going to talk about your, your day of prayer coming up on Ash Wednesday. And it's happening at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, folks. Those of you that are in the Spokane area on the South Hill, it's a beautiful site. Uh, Father Hightower, I know you've been there before. Um, mm-hmm. Just to be able to talk about what will happen and why is that important to enter into Lent in a reflective way. Let's talk a little bit about that concept of choice. So you can help me out here. So I've got five teenage kids, all right? So I've got nine kiddos and five of them are teenagers. So you can pray for me. So, because they pound on my door when I'm sick and they don't care that I'm sick. They want what they want, right? Absolutely. Um, So um, having them um, be able to dig into that place within them where they will want to choose to do what is authentically good for them, right? So Mm -hmm. having them want to choose God as their highest good. Um, For a lot of young people today, I know that they are faced with the obscurity of God, uh, that God isn't so obviously present to them. And so whether it's an existential feeling of emptiness or not fitting in and belonging or a sense of look at what's happening in the world around me. And it feels like it's out of control. I don't feel like there's a good and loving father who's providentially shepherding this world to the end for which he created it. Um, How do you um, help foster within them in the world around them and in the life they're living and within them, that sense of the, uh, the reality of God? I use it as an, I start with an intellectual proposition. 
So when I was teaching at Gonzaga Prep or when I was teaching at Bellarmine or even when I was teaching at Jesuit High down in Sacramento, um, it didn't matter what subject I taught. I started I started with uh, Aristotle in ethics um, and said, you know, in the Western world, this is how we think. This is how the development of thought. And, you know, using someone like uh, Father Spitzer's Four Levels of Happiness, eventually you get to that unmoved mover, which is God. And so allowing students to recognize that, okay, this isn't, you know, my grandma or grandpa telling me I have to do this. This is the way the Western world thinks. And this is the way the Western world develops. Well, where's my ownership in that? And how do I move forward in that? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what I mean by having a well-formed conscience is you give them the tools first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not going to start by reading Aquinas. And so if you quote Aquinas to them, that's not going to do very much. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to remember that Aquinas was written for 13 and 14 year olds, Mm -hmm. uh, most 13, 14 year olds and most 20 and 30 year olds don't understand it today. <laughs> How about most 50 year olds, right? Come on. So I, right. So I think you have to I, I think you have to give the student the tools to have the ownership. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I do mm-hmm. think I think it's fair for parents to say no, you know, you're gonna go to mass on Sunday, or mm-hmm. no, you're gonna go to mass this weekend. But then if the the student is old enough and they're driving, well, then let them let them choose which one they're gonna go. Yeah. Don't say, don't say no. Our family goes to nine o'clock and that's all there is to it because that might not work. Mm-hmm. And if you force yeah. them to go, they're not going to want to go. Right. So it's uh so in my home, one of the, one of the uh, uh, analogy or metaphors we use is that um, the path we want them to walk is, is when we set up rules, rules are meant to be guardrails, not prison bars. Correct. And so, you know, as guardrails, it keeps them on the path. Prison bars, they feel locked up and trapped. And it's like, if you're feeling like what we're saying to you is, this feels like a prison bar. Well, it, that's not how we intended. Our goal is that this would be a guardrail for you because it really is going to be a better thing for you to stay on the path. Correct. Well, and then I would phrase the question then, uh, not, I mean, you have nine kids, so I'm not going to tell you how to be a parent, uh, but- you, you go know, right pretty, ahead. I am. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still looking for the book on how to raise teens. I, so, you know, um, I, I would allow them to have, again, going back to ownership of their choices. So, for instance, you know, I often will talk to kids, you know, here in Missoula Catholic schools and uh, up at Loyola Sacred Heart High School, you know, and I'll say, you know, they'll when they come in, you know, for first reconciliation or the younger reconciliations, it's always the same thing. You know, they fought with their parents. They disobeyed their parents. They didn't do their chores. They got in trouble, you know, and I would always tell them, well, you know, you're pretty bright, aren't you? And then I'd give them a choice. What do you think is better coming home from school, putting your stuff away, doing your chores, and then having more free time or not putting your stuff away, not doing your chores, getting in an argument with mom, fighting with your siblings, getting in trouble, and then having to do the chore anyways. You know, and then they can realize, oh, wait, if I do the chore first, then I'm going to have more free time and I can do these things. So you've given them a choice by encouraging them to stay, as you would say, in the guardrail, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that that's a freedom. That's a freedom rather than a, a hindrance or a prison bar. Nice. I like that. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that. As a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find 
uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. That's Father Hightower talking with me today on the program. Whether you're listening on Sacred Heart Radio or on a podcast or whether you're watching this on uh, one of our social media platforms, it's, it's great to have Father Hightower on. Today, Father Hightower is here to share a bit about his, uh, his upcoming Day of Silent Prayer and Reflection uh, happening on Ash Wednesday, which is literally less than a week away now, next Wednesday. Can you believe it, folks? And I think that um, when you talk about the concept of choice, Father Hightower, um, I think that choice is also, it's a very relevant thing regarding having a good Lent, right? It's being intentional and making a choice to enter in and all of that. So when you think about the importance of folks, like even using (laughs) the time we have right now in the days leading up to Ash Wednesday, um, talk a bit about the importance of uh, this, this time of preparation for the Lenten season? Well, the, the day of reflection, I think the preparation is being ready for, you know, obviously the passion, which is painful, but also the glory of the resurrection, the Easter miracle and the Paschal mystery. And so I think you have to put yourself in a position to be prepared for that, both physically and mentally. And by physically, I mean, in you know, not being agitated, not running, not, you know, not just running from one thing to the next, um, but entering into your prayer uh, in a way that's absolute. Um, the, the day reflection is going to be built around the uh, Ignatian examine. So the examination of conscience that uh, Ignatius of Loyola developed um, early on uh, before the Jesuits were even created or started. And it was a way of recognizing where God is active in your life and where you fail to recognize God's activity. Um, not mm-hmm. where God wasn't, because God is omnipresent. God is always there. But sometimes we don't recognize where God is and we sometimes don't recognize, even though we proclaim to be lovers of God and being Christian and being faithful Catholics, we sometimes don't recognize how our actions actually hurt other people, which is the exact opposite of what God would want. And so doing the examine and reflecting on the movements of the day, I think allows people to, to not only know how they're coming across to other people, but how to recognize where the gift and grace of the Holy Spirit is active in their life. And I think that will prepare them better and better for some of the pain of the some of the pain of the uh, passion um, and some of the glory of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father, I love that. Um, when you think about this reality of um, how do I have a good Lent and doing so in the light of where it's all headed, it's headed towards the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven, right? So the, the Paschal mystery, um, being able to do that well, um, doing a, an examination of conscience, you should, you know, uh, the conscience they examine. Um, I, I think that that's a practice that is uh, occasionally talked about, but I'm not sure folks have been really formed in how to do an examination of conscience. Um, and, and let's say in an Ignatian format, when you talked about such as focusing on the ways that I failed God, right? But it's focusing on the presence of God in all things in the course of my day. Um, mm. Talk a bit about what that practice would look like for someone to build out as a habit um, on a daily basis. Is, is that something that's realistic today? And if so, how could they uh, implement that? What would that look like on a sort of day-to-day basis? 
Oh yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's very realistic and uh, is actually rather easy to do. Um, one of the things with the examination is it should be 12, 13, 14, 15 minutes. And if you're going over 15 minutes and you're getting caught up in scruples and grandeur. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a process that you move through uh, humbly and openly, but also a process you move through with joy. And so I think most people could probably take 10 to 15 minutes out of their day uh, to examine their conscience and to see uh, to see where God is present and where they fail to recognize God's presence. Um, and there's a, a number of different steps to do. I mean, that's what we're going to go through on the uh, on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, you know, in the in the Ignatian tradition or a Jesuit tradition, I mean, you could probably Google examination of conscience uh, Jesuit, and you're going to get, you know, at this point, 27 Jesuit universities that all have a variation of uh, the examine on their website. Um, mm-hmm. 74 high schools, you know, I mean, they all have the examination. So it's it's not going to be hard to find, even if you just go to something simple like uh, Catholic Resources, which is a uh, Felix Just, a Jesuit, um, you're going to find all kinds of examples. And when you do that, you're going to find one that works for you. Mm-hmm. So, Father, if it's okay, what I'd love to do is start us in on that. Take one like sliver, one element of an examination of conscience and help us do it live right here, right now, just for folks that they could be blessed by it. You know, it's, this program's heard in the morning and people might be watching or, or listening to this anytime, day or night. But I, I believe in God's providential intervention in people's lives that what you share right now might be life-changing, transformative for someone who's maybe never done it before. Right. Okay. So the, the first step would be to be uh, grateful for God's blessings, grateful for God's presence in your life. And so you take a period of time from whenever you did it yesterday or the time you wake up to the time you go to bed and you go through your day uh, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second and see where God's presence was there. Was it in the the babbling gurgle of a little kid? Um, was it someone unexpected who smiled at you? Um, was it going to mass? What was it in the Eucharist? Uh, but you go through your day and then you're grateful for all those moments. You're grateful for all those moments. And again, you you know, that would be six, seven, eight minutes. You don't dwell. Um, you don't fast forward through your day, but you can rewind here and there. Um, you can hit pause, but then you, you move through looking at where was Christ present. And sometimes not, not necessarily where you would expect it, but just in your relationships. I mean, the most important relationship we have clearly is the relationship with Christ. But that is usually played out, not in a vacuum, but it's played out in our community. It's played out mm-hmm. in our our families. It's played out with our work coworkers. Um, so, Father, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, di- dialogue in here. I'm gonna go dig in a little further with you. So, okay. you talk about being grateful for God's presence showing up in these surprising ways, maybe in unexpected settings. I think that um, there are a number of folks listening who are like, "What does God's presence feel like?" Because I, you know, I believe in God, but it's more of an abstract. A conceptual thing, rather than I experience the presence of God in the course of my day. So I want to be grateful for God's presence, but I maybe a lot of folks are just not very reflective. So the idea of saying I'm going to go back, even hour by hour through my day, is a really it's a heavy lift. It is. And then to say where's God, I I, I have a hard time figuring out where God's present. So. Um, Dial us in a little bit more on that. Well, the way I would dial that in is, is to talk about consolation. So as you go through your day, you know, hour by hour, minute by minute, 
is the experience something that draws you closer to God or is it something that draws you away from God? And if it's drawing you closer to God, then I'm going to say that's God's presence. You know, whether it's in the, you know, whether you're out hiking in the cathedral, of the trees and, you know, the grandeur of the grandeur of creation, or like I say, whether you're in adoration and sitting in the real presence, there's, there's a way to experience what you're doing as drawing you closer to God and then vice versa as a way of drawing you away from God. Mm-hmm. So one of the intellectual things I look is, you know, you ask for the gift and grace of the Holy Spirit, but then through that gift and grace of the Holy Spirit, you can start recognizing how your activities are the activities of those around you are helping build that relationship. Mm-hmm. And then you start, you start getting a feel for it more and more. It's not, you know, I had a, a classmate when I first joined the novice, when I first joined the Jesuits as a novice, and uh, he was not very experienced uh, in prayer. And I'm not really sure how he got by the extensive application process. Uh, and, you know, we went into the retreat and he said, well, if I'm not levitating in four days, I'm going to call it quits. Well, no, <laughs> you start out slow. You start out slow. I mean, if we go back to a sports metaphor, you know, you want to run the marathon, but you start doing one one lap, you know, 440 yards around the track. And then you build up and then you do three miles, four miles. It takes a while, but you also build a comfortability in that. And I like that. You know, and if if you're a, an athlete or a runner or something like that, when you miss it, you know it. Your mm-hmm. body knows that you've missed going out for that run. You, you know, the endorphins are not there. Well, in the exam, and as you start recognizing where Christ is present, you're going to have those endorphins. They're going to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, Father, I think about the um, the importance of starting our day in prayer. When I think about the ability I have to be conscious or aware of God's presence in the course of the day, like be pleasantly surprised with some consolation uh, that moves me towards God or or just the wondrous recognition, wow, God, you are so merciful or so generous to me in this moment. Um, That's often traced back to the protection of the first chunk of time, however long that is, preserving and protecting that first uh, bit of time when I wake up in the morning to hold that in reserve for the Lord and holding that in reserve for a time of quiet prayer or liturgy, the hours or whatever the prayer um, style or devotion is, but Mm -hmm. holding that in reserve for the Lord is a way of kind of filling me with God's presence, with the strength I need that day to be able then to move into the day gracefully. What would you think about that? I think it's a good idea. I think uh, anytime you spend in prayer is going to be good. Um, But being prepared for the day and asking for the gifts and graces that you hope to accomplish that day or to recognize that day, I think is, is good. Um, You know, I, I, I often tell my students, you know, what we want to do is avoid planning prayer. Uh, So we want to avoid planning prayer where you're just going through the checklist of all the things you need to accomplish that day and then say, well, I'm going to be present to God. Well, you've actually, or planning your day out. What, what do you need to accomplish? What check marks do you need to put on your laundry list? And uh, that can work for some people, but I'd say, no, where, where do you want to be led? You know, um, Ignatius of Loyola, we're, we're taught from a very young age not to ask God for things. Um, but mm-hmm. Ignatius of Loyola was very big on asking for graces, you know, asking for the grace to be patient, asking for the grace to be humble, asking for the grace uh, of fortitude. Um, and then do your prayer and see if that grace is present. And if it is, be thankful. And if it's not, well, then maybe we ask for it the next time. 
Mm-hmm. So I think it's good to do uh, a beginning day that way. I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. The examine is a reflection on what you've already done. So it's a past tense. Um, but at the end of it, at the end of it, then you pray for the grace that you want to accomplish that day or that next time period. Um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, they're, they're, they're two different types of prayer, but they're both beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what I've found is that if I'm not praying in the morning, my examination of conscience at night is not nearly as attuned or alert or um, I, I don't have that heightened awareness. Um, but when I enter the day prayerfully, then um, when I get to the end of my day, it's so much easier to do the check marks and recognize, oh, wow, the Lord was there. The Lord was there. Right. So I, I think it's that having the spiritual attunement maybe is is a way of of thinking about it. So well, absolutely. Well, let's let's go back to the uh, sports metaphor I've been using of running the marathon and by starting around running one lap, you got to stretch first. Otherwise, you're not going to make it at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think they both go together, don't they? Absolutely. Yes, for sure. So, Father Hightower, I want to um, ask you a bit about uh, your Jesuit background. So I had a chance. I, I did the uh, first... Um, cycle at the Gregorian University. Uh, I got okay. my STB there. So Jesuit trained, not as part of the, the order, but I was studying there and um, loved my time there. The amazing professors, just incredible. Gerald O'Collins, for instance, was one. Jared Wicks, there's just a number of amazing Jesuit uh holy priests and scholars who, you know, the ability to sit at their feet and to just soak in from them was such a blessing. When you think about your uh, background, uh, the Jesuit tradition obviously is well known for its scholarly, academic uh, mission and pursuit. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite uh, Jesuit professor that uh, really poured into you or really opened your mind uh, in, in, in new ways to understand the faith in God? Yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite one per se. It depends on what the topic is. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, studying- By the way, that's a very Jesuit answer. Okay. I just yeah. got to say that was, re- <laughs> you know, uh, studying with uh, Dick Clifford, uh, the old Testament was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, studying with uh, Dan Harrington, the new Testament was very powerful. I mean, these are two of the, the legends of uh, hermeneutics, the legends of uh, exegetical study. Um, and so, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose, uh, some of my other professors that were a little bit more quiet and they helped you realize the direction you were headed and mm-hmm. uh, allowed you to have, again, like I said, at the beginning of this interview, ownership of what you were studying, what you were doing and how that went. Uh, you know, I did a master's of philosophy at Gonzaga university, uh, you know, studying social analysis, you know, and so having your eyes opened up to Bergerman and uh, some sociologists like that. When I was back in Boston doing my master's of divinity, my MDiv, you know, I took classes at uh, Harvard School of Education. So having Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot open up the classroom and all the different dynamics that you have to pay attention to as a teacher in the classroom, well, those those cross over all the different dynamics I have to pay t- attention to to the congregation when I preach. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different ways of applying the knowledge uh, fairly and openly. I think I think one of the biggest things for Jesuits is both the Magis, but also ad majorium de gloriam. Um, it's, it's not for the nice glory of God. It's not for the convenient glory of God. It's not for the neat glory of God. It's for the greater glory of God. 
Um, and you do that through the modus. And that modus is means the status quo is never acceptable. Every time you, you know, you plan something, you do it, you evaluate it, you pray over it, and then you do it again, hopefully better. And when you do that in academics, you can learn a lot more than just what's on the page. Well, that's really that's really profound. I I wasn't aware of that sense of every time you do something, you should strive to do it even better. And that was that's connected to the the Jesuit motto for the greater glory of God. That's really that's very powerful. Yeah. Um, so, Father Hightower, one of the um, one of the things that lots of uh, let's say. Uh, engaged Catholics eventually become aware of if they read about the life of St. Ignatius uh, Mm -hmm. is they learn about this famous uh, spiritual exercises and making a 30 day retreat. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit about, do you remember yours and were, were there any highlights you could share with us? Anything that was like when you got to the end of the second week, we, (laughs) how were you doing? And (laughs) um, I've been fortunate enough to do the retreat twice. Uh, both as a novice uh, before I took vows, and then also in what we call churchianship, which is kind of the end of our formation uh, process. Even if even if we've been ordained for a few years, we still do what's called churchianship. And so I've done the retreat twice. And I think one of the things when I was a novice was this idea of being quiet for thirty days. You know, being silent for thirty days. Yeah, and tell silent- people about it. What is a what what is a what constitutes a thirty day silent uh, the the Ignatian thirty day retreat. Well, what it is, is it's silence from distractions. You know, so again, everything I do, I'm moving towards, hopefully, ideally, my relationship with Christ, and my relationship with God. And so you're moving towards that. So the silence is, yeah, you're not watching TV, because that's going to distract you. Um, you're not reading the newspaper, because that definitely will distract you. Um, you're not reading, you know, magazines, or even reading, you know, very powerful books, you know, the city of God, you know, the Summa. You know, even reading very powerful books, The Cloud of Unknowing. Well, no, you're not doing that because you're focused on these prayer periods as Ignatius has set it up to flow so that you can recognize where the Holy Spirit is active in your life and ultimately there where Christ is active in your life. And so the silence is really a freedom from distractions. So for me, you know, coming into it, you know, I, you know, like I say, family five, you know, sports and all that kind of the chaos of a big household. Uh, and then living in the residence halls at Seattle U, being an RA, then going in, being uh, in uh, work release facilities for the Department of Corrections, you know, as a facilitator one, contract staff, and then going to an orphanage in Haiti and working, you know, both in the school and director of boys housing and orphanage. There was chaos around me all the time. That's all I knew. I mean, mm-hmm. even my summer job growing up was lifeguarding. There's chaos in the pool. There's chaos at the beach. Um, and so then all of a sudden say, OK, now you're not going to talk and you're going to be silent. That was scary. It was very scary. But learning that silence is not necessarily verbal, but silence is from distraction so that you can apply all of your energy towards your prayer. Well, then also that that was the biggest surprise for me. It's like, oh, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember meeting uh, with my spiritual director um, as a novice. He just actually passed away a few weeks ago um, in Seattle. And I remember, you know, the first week or so, you know, I'd I'd go in there for my spiritual direction. I'd talk to him for about an hour, hour and a half sometimes, try to eke out as much as I could to be in conversation with someone. And by the end of the retreat, I'd barely nod at him in the hallway. You know, I I didn't want to be distracted. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that was for me the biggest surprise. That's really, that's really neat. And what a gift to be able to have done that twice. And I, I think that 
Um, so for most folks, the idea that silence is about silence being freed from distraction in order to be free for the Lord is uh, the gift of this Ash Wednesday silent day of prayer. Again, I'm with Father Hightower. He's a Jesuit priest. He is assigned in Missoula at St. Ig- um, Ignatius Parish. And then, not, not St. Ignatius. Um, St. Francis Xavier. St. Francis Xavier. Yeah, the other great early Jesuit. And also at um, uh, a mission, right? And is the mission St. Ignatius? St. Ignatius Mission in St. Ignatius, Montana, on the uh, Confederated Salish and Kootenai Peoples Reservation. Wow. Powerful. And yet he's going to be here at on the South Hill at Immaculate Heart Retreat Center. You can see the website is ihrc.net, ihrc.net, immaculateheartretreatcenter.net. And under the events tab, you'll see this. It's a silent day of prayer and examine for Lent. And that's coming up on Wednesday, the 22nd. Yes, that's right. That is Ash Wednesday from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. And uh, it includes mass, a couple of conferences and lunch, adoration, lots of amazing things that'll be happening there. Father, you've done this before. When you do these days of silence, um, what would you say would be some of the fruits that you've typically heard from um, retreatants, people who come for that that time of prayer? Um, what, what are the blessings that they receive um, by entering into, in this instance, uh, uh, Lent, uh, by coming to a day like this? I think the, the biggest surprise for me sometimes in what people gather is just a different style or a different way of looking at prayer as we try to enter into Lent or whatever season it might be. Um, people come forward uh, often, and especially people that take advantage of some of the great programming we have at Immaculate Heart Retreat House in Spokane, um, but they come in with an agenda. You know, they want to do this. They want to do this. They 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 want the divine chaplet. They want, you know, they have certain expectations. I always do it this way. And this is what I want. And to have the freedom to let that go and say, okay, no, I'm going to enter into the examine as it's being taught. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to do this to the best of my ability for this day so that I can continue to have more tools in my prayer box uh, that I can take advantage of as I continue to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the biggest advantages of something like a day of reflection uh, of the examine is it's not the only way to pray, but it's a way to pray. And it gives you, like I say, more tools in your spiritual prayer box uh, for when things are rough, when they, you know, when we do get to that passion and we're like, what's, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a spiritual grounding and tools to address those. Yeah. You know, Father, I think about um, the, the best lens I've had um, aren't necessarily the ones that were the most successful, but they were the one like from the standpoint of I set out these specific goals for prayer, mm-hmm. fasting, and almsgiving, right? Those three right. principal ways of entering into the desert with Christ. Um, but it, it's it's not that I've fulfilled them all perfectly. In fact, it, it often they were they were great challenges and they were very humbling types of things. But it was that I was intentional. It was that I didn't just stumble into the season. And so even though there are there are, there are years when that has also happened to some degree, I think one of the reasons why we're having you on a week before uh, Lent is, is here is that we want folks to be thinking about even now, what are the kinds of things that you'll do on Ash Wednesday itself? What mm-hmm. are the kinds of things that you'll do to be praying and thinking about, Lord, what would you have me do? And I want to be open to receive. I don't want to just come with my own agenda. I want to be open to receive 
what it is you have for me this Lent in prayer, in fasting, and in almsgiving. So I think that um, uh, one of the great blessings of, of folks, even just hearing you today, is having that sense of focus on, let me let me give some thoughtful reflection now to what I want to be doing next Wednesday so I don't just wake up and say, oh my goodness, it's Ash Wednesday. What, what time is Mass? Right. Well, so Ignatius was big on what we call the pre-election. And that's, again, asking for the graces we want to receive. So for, you know, coming a week out from Ash Wednesday, even if you're not going to take advantage of this opportunity up at Immaculate Heart, people can still in their prayer say, okay, what are the prayers? What do I want to accomplish in, in this Lent? And where where am I going to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to mold me as I move into this season of Lent? Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that, you know, it's interesting because Lent is certainly a season of penance, but it's also a season of great joy um, as we prepare for, for the Tritium. And so asking for the graces and gifts that you desire, and then going through Lent and seeing if they're there, I think is always going to be an advantage. So uh, think of, uh, when you say the, the gifts and graces, let's talk a bit about what would you say would be some gifts that lay people should not be afraid to ask for, but really should find that sense of confidence to ask their good and loving father for a lavishing of good gifts on them. I would say a gift of patience. Um, I think the gift of patience uh, for for us as practicing Christians and as Catholics, but also just as us in our society, in our world today, uh, we need a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I always tell people is that when they're frustrated with someone, just pray for God's presence, that God be present with them. Not directional prayer, not God do this, God do that, God do this. You know, God make them realize they're wrong and I'm right. So not not directional prayer, but just presence, because I find it's very hard to be upset and frustrated with someone when you're praying for the divine to be present to them. Um, so I think patience is a big one. Um, the other thing is that is that the beauty of our faith, you know, and even like in, in the Gospel of John, it says, you know, I have other sheep that are not of this flock. Um, there's going to be people that view the faith practice differently than you. Mm-hmm. Um they're going to want to do, uh, as I call them, the liturgical calisthenics differently. They they might not, you know, their home parish might not stand and sit at the exact same times you do in your parish. And that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're a better Catholic or they're a worse Catholic. It means that you're both Catholic. Um, and so praying for that patience, and not necessarily tolerance, but that patience of saying, okay, God is present with both of us. That's going to allow us to build the kingdom here um, through the activity of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Nice. All right. So today I'm talking with uh, Father Hightower. He is a Jesuit priest. He is going to be at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center on Wednesday, February 22nd. That is Ash Wednesday. That's next Wednesday for Mm -hmm. a day of prayer focused on the examination of conscience of St. Ignatius Loyola, an Ignatian way of examining our conscience and letting that be part of not only the day of prayer, part of your Lent, but making it a habit for your life of faith. Father, I've got five quick questions for you. This is rapid fire questions. Okay. Are you ready? So, I'll, I'll try to be. Yes. <laughs> All right. What's a book you're reading right now that you're like, wow, this is, this book is really grabbing me. Uh, I'm reading uh, a disarming spirit about uh, Archbishop Hunthausen. Hmm. I, I'm not even aware of that book. When did that come out? 
came out about three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. It was written by a gentleman who wrote for the uh, Catholic newsletter in Seattle. Okay. Um, and so it's a series of interviews with Hunthausen and um, he didn't publish it until after Hunthausen passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, well, actually it was right as Hunthausen was dying, I think. Um, Cause I want to say it's about three or four years old, Okay, but it's been on my shelf for a while. So I'm going through that right now. Nice. Well, what jumped, give me one anecdote, something that jumped out at you from the book that you're like, wow. You know, Hunthausen was an amazing leader. And I think one of the reasons why he was such a good leader is that he was such a good listener. Mm-hmm. Um, he really was able to listen to people and see where, where their need was, where, where, where they needed Christ in their life and then respond in an appropriate way. Um, so I think he was a very pastoral leader, and I think that's because he could li- he could listen so well. Nice. Uh, question two: What do you see as a sign of hope for the church right now? Well, I'm a Jesuit, so I'm going to say Francis. Uh, <laughs> no, I think the hope I think the hope for the church right now is that we have you know in the synodal process we're, we're listening to the people of God across the world. So it's not just the American church or the Canadian church or the New Zealand church, but it's the Catholic church and listening to people uh, under the leadership of our bishops and the bishops conferences. I find that very hopeful mm-hmm. um, to, to move away from a, a nationalistic cultural war way of looking at our faith to where's grace present and where's the dignity of the divine in all of our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Have you had any involvement in um the sort of gathering of of uh, inf- insights, information, answers to questions, things like that. Have you seen anything that is like, yeah, wow, this is this is actually quite powerful. Yeah, we were we were very fortunate here in Montana, uh, both under the leadership of Bishop Vetter for the way we did it as a diocese, the Diocese of Helena, but also as a Jesuit and being at two diocesan parishes that are under the Jesuit tradition or the Ignatian tradition, we also were able to do our own synodal process and go through the uh, congregation of major superiors and so submit answers and questions to both the diocesan process, but also to religious life process. So it was very, it was very uh, good for us to do that. Um, It was also very different doing it here in Missoula, as opposed to up on uh, the reservation. and so there are different needs and different requests that people had about what they desire from the church. And awesome. so I find that I find that very hopeful as well. Okay, great. Question three, the, on the other side, what would you consider a challenge that the church needs to sort of awaken themselves, awaken ourselves to, to say, we need to step up, stand up and speak out to face a particular challenge that is um, one that God is asking us to face as a church today? You know, I think the biggest one is intolerance that, uh, you know, Jesus, yeah, he called this, this is an evil generation. That's, that's probably a bad translation. Um, but Jesus never shunned anyone. He always, uh, he always drew them where, whether it be the Sumerian woman at the well that culturally he's not allowed to talk to, but sees something, uh, whether it be the man with the withered hand that he's, he's not allowed to touch and yet does, um, whether it be, uh, the man who has five friends who uh, rip a roof open to lower him down so that he can be present to Christ uh, and Christ can heal and, and pick up your mat and go home. Um, I think our intolerance we have uh, in diversity of theology and diversity of liturgical style is very difficult right now. And I think we need to, like I say, pray for God's presence and and follow the church as authentically as we can, but also realize that the diversity of liturgical style, the diversity of thought, 
makes us stronger as a community, not weaker. Do you know what? Is there someone you can think of that does that well? Yeah, I think uh, I do think Francis does it fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of his comments, particularly when he's on the plane and he uh, he's going off cuff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think he does that very well. Um, I think we have a number of bishops that do it very well. Uh, obviously, coming out of uh, being in Spokane all those years at Gonzaga, I think Bishop Supich or Cardinal Supich now, I think he does it very well. He makes some people very upset. But I think he's a good listener and he's a good pastoral leader. Um, and he sees the totality of the situation, not just one viewpoint. Um, and so I think he does that very well, too, is trying to trying to bring people together rather than trying to divide them. I know there's some arguments around the 1962 Missal, what's you know normally called the traditional Latin Mass. But those are OK. You know, that's OK to have those disputes. Um, the trick is to see where is God present. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number four, you have spent a lot of your life in the academic uh, realm, and now you're a pastor. What would you consider a pleasant surprise um, exercising your priestly ministry in a parish setting in a significant way? What what has been a pleasant surprise at being a priest pastor in addition to your academic endeavors? For me, the most pleasant surprise is the trust. The trust the people of God put in me as their pastor and as their leader. Um, whether they agree with what I say or don't agree with what I say, there's a tremendous amount of trust that's extended. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, particularly with the little kids, you know, um, being around kids and being in elementary schools, as long as I have, uh, the way the kids respond when we do, uh, you know, clow, you know, children's liturgy of the word, um, and just the trust that, you know, they're running up to the front of the altar area to, to listen to the word of God even though their mom and dads are back there at the, you know, back in the pews somewhere. Um, I think that's one of the biggest surprises. Um, the other thing that's it's been surprising and a challenge for me is that uh, I'm the pastor for the whole parish, not just the ones who agree with me, but I'm the pastor for the whole parish. Um, and that's is that also- hard sometimes? Is that hard to, to have that same sense of openness and, uh, affable spirit with those that maybe want to press in towards you in a way that is disagreeable to you? Yeah, I find it a challenge um, because, you know, I've been asked by my Jesuit superiors, the provincial, but also, you know, I have an oath of fidelity to the bishop as a, as one of his pastors of a diocesan parish uh, to be a leader, uh, a leader, prayer leader for the people of God here at St. Francis and at St. Ignatius. And so, when people disagree with what I do or it's different than what they prefer, there can be a challenge. It can also be a great teaching moment to, you know, say, no, that's, that's not exactly how it is. Uh, but that's okay. You know, to say that we can still worship together. You know, I point out that when the church argues, uh, we get together in the ecumenical councils, right. You know, and uh, one of the things we do first and foremost in the ecumenical councils is we pray for the gift and grace of the Holy spirit. And we go to mass together. We break bread together. And I think when you break bread together, even if you disagree, there's a there's a real healing that can take place there. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. It's it sounds like uh, you you're called upon to be patient, ex, uh, act in a synodal way, and also be tolerant. <laughs> That's <laughs> the, the very idea. First... <laughs> okay, last question: uh, favorite Jesuit saint and why? You know, I I would say Blessed P- or Saint Peter Faber, um, mm-hmm. he'd be one. But I think also uh, Peter Claver, Peter okay. Claver, mm-hmm. who uh, is known 
known as the apostle to the slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, he used canon law in a way to protect people. We, we often forget that canon law is for the benefit of the church, and it's not. The canon law is for the benefit of the congregation. It's for the benefit of the people. It's to protect the people from uh, the abuses of a priest, not in a sexual abuse way, but just the abuses. And so Peter Claver had a small room up above the harbor in Cartagena uh, in Colombia. And when the slave ships would come in from Africa, that, that horrible representation of what we do to each other in humanity, when the slave ships would come in from Africa, he would run down and run through the entire boat baptizing everybody. He'd baptize all of them. And the reason why was because under Spanish law, um, as barbarians, as slaves, they had no rights. But as Christians, under canon law, as baptized Christians, they had rights. And so he would baptize them. And you could talk about the baptism and desire and whether it was appropriate, but he literally baptized thousands of enslaved individuals exactly to give them rights and dignity. Um, and so using using canon law to protect people and raise up the dignity of the divine, I would put him probably as the top of my saints. I have never heard that story. That is so striking. Wow. Well, Father, any final words? So I'd love for you to give an invitation for folks that are in the Spokane area. They're in uh, northern Idaho listening to this uh, to come on out to the day of prayer next Wednesday. Yeah. So we have it next Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, the day of prayer. Uh, We'll start in the morning with mass and then two different conferences, adoration and confession. And we'd love to see you out there. Um, And if you can't come, you know, for a wide variety of reasons, whatever it might be, we trust and pray that you have a wonderful Lent as you enter into it and uh, keep looking at Immaculate Heart for some of their other programs they do and some of the programs your parishes are doing. Um, There's many different ways to enter into Lent. And so we'd like to see Immaculate Heart, but understand that you should be at Immaculate Heart. (laughs) He's just discerned for you all. Be open to what the Holy Spirit's doing. Uh, Father Hightower, I really appreciate you've been very generous with your time with me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, folks, again, come on out next Wednesday. Again, you can register for this event. You can find out more information by going to the website, IHRC, as in Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, our IHRC.net. Click under the events tab, and that'll get you to the Ash Wednesday silent day of prayer with Father Hightower. There's your picture right there, Father. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time with me today on the program. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for this opportunity to share the good word. Amen. All right. God bless. Blessings.